Hey, you are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministry, visit WERFCC.com. We're going to be in the book of John. Um, we're going to look at most of that book, of that chapter. Um, and I'm going to have you stand for a portion of it and read it with me. And it'll be on the screen. You don't have to, but I'd love for you to stand. Uh, if nothing else, just to acknowledge the Word of God in that time. I'll start by telling you a story that happened just this last Tuesday. Um, Tuesday, I uh, took a group of about three or four people, and we went back to Ross Correctional Institute uh, to prison one more time because the new chaplain, uh, who is a part of Ross Correctional Institute, is in training. He's going to go there full-time. He's in two weeks of training. And they said to the Kairos guys, um, we trust you enough that you can come and lead chapel service for us. So we had a group of us that left early morning, Tuesday morning. I mean, it's crack of dawn early morning because we have to drive an hour and a half before they're open and get to be there at 8. So we're up early, get there, and, and go inside. And I have to say to you, after we did that chapel service, uh, it was about 45, 50-minute chapel service. And when we got done, all of us were leaving going, that wasn't enough time with them. Um, they wanted more time. They needed more time. And those guys, so 35 of them show up at 8 o'clock in the morning to have a chapel service with a bunch of bozos that come from another part of Ohio. And it was just a rewarding, rewarding time. But as we gathered, we got those guys into small groups. And one of the guys in my small group prayed this prayer that I just want, to, to hear, want you to hear because I got to hear it was a blessing to me. And here I am, like, doing my thing, thinking I'm here to bless them, Right? We're praying around this little circle, about eight of us. And there comes this guy, and he says this simple prayer. So all he said, thank you, God, for a moment of peace in the middle of the hassle. And I thought to myself, I think my hassles are a big deal. But in a few minutes, he's going to go back and get locked in his cell. And it was an amazing little moment of reducing Brian down again. How important my things are compared to his. But if I could take you, uh, I wouldn't take you to coffee because that would just be wrong uh, of me to drink coffee. Like anybody who offers me coffee is just a mistake. Um, That's just a mistake. That's your fault for doing that. Um, I don't do coffee uh, for lots of reasons, but that would not be a good thing. Um, my, My skin gets all hot. I get really weird. Some of you have to have it. I get it. But if I were going to talk with you and try to convince you about who Jesus is, I'd probably take you to Skyline Chili. And so over a dish of Skyline, we'd sit together and we'd talk about Jesus. And if I were going to convince you about who Jesus was, I'm going to, I, would, I would use some things that, to try to help you with that. And I want you to know what I wouldn't use. What I wouldn't talk about to let you know more about Jesus. One of them I would not let you know about is the church. I wouldn't start by talking about, man, our church, we just rock, man, we're awesome. Like, That's not how I want to convince you and talk to you about Jesus. Because the church through the years has made a lot of mistakes. And I'm not talking like just just church. Just church in general. We just make a lot of mistakes. And I wouldn't want to convince someone to follow Jesus because of the church. I also would not use other Christians to talk to that person about convincing you or that person about uh, a relationship with Christ Jesus. I've truly been blessed with fellow believers in Christ Jesus, and I, I just get the, the opportunity to keep meeting more and more believers in Jesus, and it's a cool thing. But if the church is not made up of the building, but of the people, not the steeple, we're infallible. 
And that makes us not a place I want to start with the church. Like, let me convince you Jesus is because of the church and other Christians. I would also not, and before you have a gasp in the air, I would not try to tell you about Christ Jesus because the Bible tells me so. And let me explain. Brian, why wouldn't you not believe in the Bible? Don't you believe in the Bible? Absolutely believe in the Bible. Infallible word of God from God the creator given to us to make sure that we have definite map and plan of direction for our life without question. But I wouldn't use the Bible for this reason because the Bible, at least the four gospels that we have, one of them that we're going to look at today talking about who Jesus is, they didn't actually have a copy, one copy in the hands of any person until AD 70 to AD 100. It just, they didn't have them yet. Like, we didn't, they didn't have printed things for them. And if they did, they had one copy, and they're moving it around. There's going to be a long time before it gets to you. Uh, and so I'm not going to convince you that way. Because here's the thing about what happened after the crucifixion. Everyone unfollowed Jesus after the crucifixion. Everyone. That whole, uh, I let you go as one of my friends on Facebook or whatever it happens to be. They all did it at the same time at the crucifixion. No one was around. They unfollowed him all at the same time. And I just, I keep thinking to myself, what would happen? Here it is. The Savior of the world says he's going to come and he's going to be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one's going to come to the Father but through him. And all of a sudden on Friday, he is dead and in a tomb and all our hopes are dashed. He called himself the Son of Man. And everyone unfollowed him. Because it wasn't popular to follow him at the time. But maybe, maybe just over the skyline, I would tell you a little bit about, because some of you may not be convinced by what others might say about the resurrection, but I would convince you with history because you might actually believe history before you would actually believe anything I might tell you in the Bible. And so here's some things we know about history. First off, I would point you to a Roman emperor. Now, many of us in this room would not have but probably three, maybe, uh, Roman emperors that we would actually know about or care about. One of the Roman emperors that we would know or care about that we've learned about in history is the Emperor Nero. Nero was actually, in AD 64, decided it would be an interesting little moment to do two things. And you learn this in history. One of those things you learned about Nero in history is that he burned the city of Rome. He did. And then it got kind of out of hand. They put it out and it kind of started again. It got out of control. It was like, hey, let's start this little bonfire. And it went crazy and started burning the city. And then the second thing that you learned in history is this really important thing. Nero blamed it on Christians. He blamed it on Christians. Now, let me help you out with this. AD 64, Jesus dies in 32, 33, okay? AD 64, Nero in Rome has Christians in the city of Rome. Let's all make this on the map. Jerusalem is some 1,500 miles away from Rome, nowhere near close to where the whole crucifixion, resurrection happened. But here, 30 years later, the city is filled with Christians, and Nero doesn't like them. Why? Because they're happy, and they're talking, and he wanted to shut them up. And so he, not only does he set it on fire, and he blames all the Christians, at that moment, he starts persecuting Christians because look what they did to our city. He wants them gone. He wants them disposed of, and he doesn't want them around. Here's what I understand about a legend in history. We can make a big legend about somebody we want by giving the facts over and over again, and how we make a legend like Paul Bunyan or whatever we want to make that that legend about. That legend will only get to a spot where it will be big some 40 to 80 years after it happened. Why Why do we have to wait until 40 to 80 years for a legend to actually take heart? Because all the people that were telling the story have finally died. All the witnesses are gone. But that's not true in this case. 
We have 30 years after, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have a city that's filled with Christians 1,500 miles away, and he sees them as being a threat. Why are they a threat? Because they're talking about a living Savior. And just like the Pharisees of old, Nero doesn't like someone taking the show. And he wants something else to be done. So if I were going to sit down and I were going to talk to you over some skyline about who Jesus is, I tell you about the witnesses that saw him, saw him alive. Witnesses that stood by and made it happen and then wrote it down so that others would have it. Then later, some 200 years later, we bound all of it up, put it in the form that we could actually make it happen and other people got a chance to have it as well. We kind of later then put it together with what we call the Old Testament, which is basically the scriptures for the Jewish people. I, I wouldn't have been happy as a Jewish person getting my scriptures all tainted with this crucifixion, resurrection thing. I understand why they're upset about it. We put it all together in one place and we called it the Bible. But before we had the Bible, we had eyewitnesses. We had disciples, 12 of them, people along the way. Paul the half-brother of James, 500 other believers saw him alive. I mean, when I think about James, the brother of Jesus, actually becoming one of the people that wrote about him, I kind of think about what it would take for a brother of any kind to call their brother master and Lord. Like, I would have to take a lot from my brother for me to call him Lord over me, master over me. But James, somehow, whenever, whenever Jesus was alive, didn't really care two weeks about him. But when he appears to him in the resurrection, all of a sudden he goes, this guy is for real, and he is now my Lord. A brother calling his brother his Savior. The resurrection, those that saw, those that talked about, those that wrote about it, and just so we're clear, this was social media. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. They were communicating face-to-face -face and going, I want to tell you about the one who came and died, and then I saw him alive three days later. Got to talk with him. He ate with some of us. Matthew's one of those guys who saw it, followed him, wrote it down. Mark, a Greek, actually saw it, witnessed it, wrote it down. Luke says in his gospel at the very beginning, he wanted to write an accurate account of what happened in front of him. John, of course, was with Jesus to the very end and finished the account before he dies of old age. Peter gets in the action, writes a couple of letters to a couple of churches. We find that James is also getting in. Paul joins the crowd, and he becomes part of it. And there were thousands and thousands of Christians growing like crazy during that time because of social media. They were talking about a risen Savior, and it was changing the world. We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get to our text in John. Hang on, it's one second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul states it this way. For what I perceived, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me, also as abnormally born. He is letting us know about the people that were telling the story. That's what I'd get Skyline with you, to convince you that Jesus is who he is. 
Well, let's read about what happened with some people that actually got some scars and some pain from what it was that Jesus was going through in the resurrection. We're going to find it in John chapter 20. I'm going to read through about the first nine verses. And then uh, before you press the snooze button, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And uh, I'd like you to read this, the rest of this text with me a little bit. Because I think if we say it out loud, if we say it out loud, there's going to be something about it getting into our spirit. So I'm going to read uh, the first nine verses about these scars and pain that Jesus has actually been inflicted with. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's because Peter had too many fish sticks that day. They bent over and they looked at the strips of linen lying there, but they did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded by itself, separate from the linen, and finally the other disciple from, reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. But they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to rise to your feet, and we're going to read this together. If you would like to read it, it's fine. If not, just listen to the rest of us read. But let's stand in honor of what we're getting ready here. Then it says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw the two angels, white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go and said to my brothers, and tell them I'm in returning to my Father, to your Father, and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the good news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that she'd seen these things. Now, verse 24. Let's read this together. And now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. The word of God. Would you be seated? Seven things this morning about scars that we see in both Mary and Thomas that are very reflective of the ones that we have. And what do these pains and scars that Jesus have tell us about us? These are these seven things that we're going to learn from this text. The first one is this, that seeing Jesus living after all he went through is evidence enough. 
She had been there. Thomas had been there, probably in the distance. He wasn't at the cross, but he was probably watching in the distance. If not, he was running like the rest of them. And the reason they believed that someone may have stolen Jesus' body was because the conversations of the religious leaders were trying to keep that from happening. They were posing the idea that Jesus was being killed and that his body might be taken. And so they posted Roman guards on the outside of the tomb. And they did that, and I think that got in their head. That someone would actually want to steal it. Then Mary, her head's kind of spinning a bit, maybe from the late night Saturday and all day crying, probably that happened on Saturday. But her head's spinning a bit, and she's weeping over the fact that someone has taken Jesus' body. His body is evidence of what had been there before. A sideline of a little resurrection humor, if I might. James was one of those that I gave you earlier. Here's another one. Maybe uh, somebody's questioned the fact that an angel would come. And I get all the time, were angels male? Were they female? We had this big theological discussion about it. Uh, but I think it's answered in the text that we have because it says Mary is weeping outside the tomb and is asked by the angels, woman, why are you crying? And it just put in my head, it has to be a male because only a man would ask another woman why she's crying. I mean, what kind of female? Like, they just, oh, let's cry together. You know, like, man's like, well, why are you crying? Only a male angel would do that. But that's just a little sideline humor. Nothing funny that. But when Jesus is finally recognized by Mary, she has the evidence that she needs. But what about Thomas? Thomas is in the upper room. He wasn't in the upper room when Jesus came into the room the first time. The door had been locked. The disciples went there. I think it's cool that they went back to the upper room. Like, where do we go? Let's go back to the very beginning. Maybe we'll figure out what we're supposed to do there. So they went back to the upper room. They locked the door. Jesus appeared into the room. So he got into the room with the door being locked. He does that again with, with Thomas. And Thomas wants proof. He wants evidence. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit doesn't completely heal him. But allows scars to be him, uh, still available in his hands and his feet and his side. Really interesting. God can create anything he wants. Like, why can't you restore the skin back to order? We'll talk about that in a minute. Because it's the evidence of what happened that actually causes the suffering. It's why I would draw you to a moment of communion and the Lord's Supper that might be sitting near your seat. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and gather that for a minute. Because it's this body that we're going to hold in our hands is a representation of the scars that Jesus had. It's proof for Thomas and for all of us that we are going to know him by his scars. His body was given as sacrifice for many. And I love what Adrian Rogers said about Jesus scars. Adrian Rogers, preacher, said this. It's a cool little statement. As I'm looking up all these things about, like, why is Jesus' hands and feet still open? What's the point of that? And everybody has something different to say. But Adrian Rogers really helped me with this one. He said this The only man made things in heaven are the scars that we made in the hands and feet inside of the Lord Jesus. Think about that for just a second. I mean, I mean Jesus is in heaven right now. And what did he take, like a trinket from the earth? No, he has scars. And where did the scars come from? We were the ones who gave it from. Now, before you start to question, like, look, I wasn't born then. I didn't do it. When we read in Scripture that all of sin was placed upon him, all of our sin was placed upon him, then we get it. Mel Gibson, in the movie The Passion of the Christ, he was directing and producing the movie. He wasn't acting in the thing at all. But he gets to the point where they draw the cameras in to Jesus being laid across the beam and his arms outstretched. And he's getting ready to be nailed to the cross. And Mel Gibson says, I have a part that I'm going to fulfill in this spot. 
I'm going to take the nail and I'm going to hold it. And you're going to feel my hand holding the nail and the mallet that's going to strike the nail into Jesus' hand. Why did Mel Gibson do that? Because he knows it was partially his fault. And it is partially ours. What's holding him there? This last Friday, we put thumbprints with paint on this cross. I asked if we could bring it in here. So these are our thumbprints from our service on Friday. And Rogers is correct. The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars that are made by the Lord Jesus. And if you remember in the song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, there's this line in that song. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. What crimes did we commit? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says it this way. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. We don't deserve grace, but in this moment, we're extended it. And I want you to just thank him for the grace that's been given to you because of his sacrifice and the scars that he had. Would you bow your heads and thank him in your own way? Lord God, it's in this moment that we come before you recognizing that the scars are a reminder of what it is that we caused in you. The crimes that we committed against you are not criminal charges, but they are crimes nonetheless because we've broken the law. And in breaking the law, we've broken a covenant relationship with you. And that puts us in a spot where we can't be near a holy God. And the only way we can put been drawn to a near holy God is to have a sacrifice. And so you send your one and only son as a sacrifice to solve all of our problems once and for all and you extend not only lavish love on us but you extend lavish grace to us as it said in Ephesians and so we thank you so much for grace and mercy that you've given love that you had beyond degree thank you again for that kind of moment as we come and reflect and remember you now in the name of Jesus I pray amen and now church family let's take this bread together Let's eat it remembering the body of our Savior who was nailed to a cross as we eat. And let's together take the cup and drink it remembering the blood that was shed on our behalf to give us life everlasting. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Here's a second thing that we learn about ourselves from the scars that Jesus had. That everyone is not fixed. Everyone is not fixed. Everything's not in its proper place yet. Jesus still needs to appear to the twelve. He needs to appear to the 500. He needs to eat with the disciples. He needs to forgive Peter. He needs to call the 12 to the business of changing lives for eternity. Mary isn't fixed. She's broken and hurt. And Thomas needs some proof that Jesus is actually alive. And the reality is, so do we. So do we. Mary's scars are actually they're her distress. The distress that she, she's distressed about this whole situation. She's broken and hurt. Do you blame her? Who wouldn't be distressed? We're all still thinking and working and fixing out our whole lives again. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul clears up what needs to be fixed in us when he says this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose in you. You see, God is still working in and through you. We just sang a song. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. I hope and pray that you're not thinking a resurrected moment's only going to happen the moment you close your eyes for all eternity. 
that he's resurrecting you through the moments that you have because you and I are not fixed yet. I don't know about you, but I still blow it. And I know Jesus. I still make dumb mistakes, and I still love Jesus. I'm not waiting for my death for him to fix me. He's fixing and resurrecting me right now. Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion till the end of the day of Christ Jesus. He's not finished working on you. He's not finished working on me. God is still carrying what he knows needs to be fixed in us. We're not completely healed because we're not home yet. And it's true. You're not perfect. None of us are. We still have a lot of spiritual growing up to do, and yet we're still probably going to have some more scars along the way, unfortunately. That's part of why we're here on this earth. We're here so that we can reach more people for Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says it this way, for the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Here's number three for us in regards to what we learn. That Jesus turns your wounds of hurt into scars of hope. You see, when all of us hurt, all we want is hope. It doesn't matter how many days you've been in a hospital, how many appointments you have, all you're looking is for some sort of hope in all of it. When your finances are awful, all you want is a little bit of hope in it. When relationship is sour, you just want a little hope in it. I don't want everything to be fixed. I just want you to be pleasant around me. I want to, I want to have a nice time together. Thomas had these kind of wounds. Mary had these kinds of wounds. And you and I have these kinds of wounds. And we need our wounds turned into scars of hope. I love the song, Death Was Arrested. We're not singing it today. But in that song, it's a song I actually like to write when, when I go inside for Kairos. But here's one of the verses for Death Was Arrested. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin, but love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. I, I read more about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. 2 Corinthians 9 through 12 says it this way. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was faded away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are bold. Bold people. That's what comes because of these wounds. Hope actually comes, and your name is known after the resurrection. We see it. God has names for everything, and he renames stuff like he wants to call something something else, and he wants to name it something else because he'll name people and places and mountains also to have a better purpose, all because of a name. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 49, another text that we read when we're in Kairos for a weekend. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16 starts with a question. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. When we get to this text and I get the chance to talk about it in front of the guys inside, I'm reminding them of all the stuff they've engraved all over their bodies. I mean, they are, they are tacked up. I mean, all over the place. And a lot of it, they have an explanation for every one of them. And so they understand an engraving moment. When we get to this text and it says, see, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I'm reminding them that when Jesus does this, you can see through it. And every time he looks at his hand, now in heaven because of the marks we've given him, and he looks down and sees that scar inside of his hand, he looks and he says, 
there's Brian. I don't forget you. He just knows who it is he sees. And back to the death was arrested song, the second verse of it says, Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains, and my orphaned heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet and my feet rose to dance when death was arrested and my life began. Around here we call a new name this. You are a treasured child of the Most High God. You have a new name. And every time there's this moment when Jesus takes a glance at his hands, he sees you. There's Brian again. He just grins and says, I did it for him. In John chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus says her name out loud, and it seems to clear up all the air. He just simply says, Mary. And all of a sudden, when he says her name, she gets it. Isn't it interesting that through maybe the morning, the early morning, maybe the fog, maybe in her distress, uh, in fact, it's kind of funny when you think about it, she thought he was the gardener. Uh, what, what gardener is going to be up early making sure a stone tomb gets its branches pruned? I mean, on a Sunday morning, who does that sort of thing? What kind of gardener shows up? And what I love about the story is there's Mary Magdalene, who's now being asked multiple times, like in the future, hey, Mary, everybody's gathered for dinner. Tell us that time you went to the tomb. And she's like, uh, hey, I'll tell you the story one more time. She starts walking through the story. She gets this part. She starts to giggle before she gets there. And she goes, you're not going to believe who I thought Jesus was. I thought he was the gardener. And everybody's like, ha, ah, that is so funny. I can't believe you thought he was the gardener. Tell a story again, Mary. Tell a story again. What kind of gardener's going to do that? But when Mary hears her name, all of a sudden the wounds turn into scars of hope. One called by the name after the resurrection. It clears up everything. And folks, you can count on the fact that since the resurrection, you are engraved on the palm of his hands, eternally there. Number four for us in regards to the resurrection. God takes your woundedness and he puts life into them, scars and all. He takes your woundedness and he puts life into them. And we need to understand that the authentic nature of other people that we run into contact with have painful wounds in their eyes. And I would pray that we would see it. The brutal truth is that life and all of us are wounded by pain. For some, the wounds are physical. They're gnawing persistently each day. For others, the wounds are emotional. And they're causing paralysis in you to the point where you can't function. And still for some, the wounds are spiritual. They're aching and longing for healing. And we don't have to look too deep to find out written within ourselves as an understanding that all of us are wounded at one level or another. And so Henry Nguyen said it this way. In our own woundedness, he said, we become a source of life for others. We become a source of light for others. And so I would just tell it to you this way, followers of Christ, let your pain point others to the gospel. Let your pain point others to the gospel. Jesus had scars, and if we follow him, so will we. Let your pain point people to the gospel, that in your suffering today, that he'll bring your wounds to Jesus. He'll use your scars for his glory. Adrian Rogers, one more time, reminds us that a scar is a wound that is healed, and you need to let Jesus heal your wounds so that you can make it a testimony for him. And one of the most effective ways of demonstrating the love of Christ is being present with someone in their woundedness, listening to them and allowing them to be sure that they're understood. And Christ is counting on you to be his listening ears, his loving heart, and his understanding presence in the life of the people that you come in contact with. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear with one another. 
bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus takes woundedness and brings him to life again. Number five for us in resurrection. You can discover and know that there is a life beyond this life. That Jesus lives and, and it means life for you. I'm not talking about life for after when you die. I, I get so tired of people thinking like, I can't wait till heaven. I can't either. But right now, I have to do life. Uh, right now, I got this stuff in my life. And I need him to breathe life into my life right now. The resurrecting king is resurrecting me all the time. And you discover joy and contentment and a reason to smile. And it all comes from a cross and an empty tomb. And who would have ever thought in their wildest dreams that we would allow ourselves to be known for a symbol of execution as something that we would honor and respect. That we would dangle a form of execution on our bodies in jewelry, in t-shirts, and in tattoos. We'd even place them on the tops of our churches. That's because we understand as Christ followers what it means to die, to live, to surrender, to be saved, to render, to be rescued. We find a lot of places and ways and other places that don't quite understand. Because here's what happens. We smile and sometimes laugh at funerals. Laugh at funerals. We give money and possessions away to people. We'll put on hair nets and plastic gloves to give food to people in another country, to people we've never met before. We will praise God in difficult circumstances. We'll rejoice when we have little, and we'll change our attitudes from the ones we used to have to the ones he's calling us to. What's wrong with us? Nothing's wrong with us. Life's been given to us, and we're living it now. We're not waiting until we die. We're finding it now. We're experiencing it now. And we sing this song sometimes. Life is worth the living. Why? Just because he lives. It's worth living. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it this way. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 10 through 12. Uh, wrong text. Yes, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that life may also be revealed in our mortal body. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Here's number six for us in regards to resurrection and scars. The resurrection reveals that Jesus saves. I hope you say that inside your spirit. Amen. It's okay to say it out loud. Jesus saves. The resurrection tells us that. Resurrection of Jesus tells you and me that he's not going to leave us as he found us. He's going to restore and rescue us and save us from the ugliness of mistakes and sin. And he'll save the person we used to be. I love this story. It was told on Paul Harvey. But what I love about it most is because of the kind of equals I've had in my lifetime. So this is the story called The Generous Thief. Uh, told on Paul Harvey. It said, Kelly Terrell says, the person who stole his 1975 Chevrolet pickup truck can take it again anytime he wants to. It says, that's because Terrell, whose truck was taken from a shopping mall in December, got the vehicle back Sunday with a fresh coat of paint and a number of other repairs. Terrell told the police Monday that he received a call from a stranger who lectured him about his truck's poor condition. The stranger told Terrell that he could pick up the pickup in the parking lot where it had been stolen. And when Terrell arrived at the lot, he found his truck and a three-page list of repairs made by the thief. 
In addition to sanding and painting the pickup, the thief performed body work and made a number of mechanical repairs. It's not a practical joke, Terrell said. I have no idea who the man is. It's all very strange, but the man can steal my vehicle anytime he wants to. Man, I want that dude in my life. But I want you to know something about that story. It is your life. It is your life. He's taken your old, beat up, whatever thing you got going on in your life, and he's turned it around and given it right back to you. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to drive it around. I'm going to let everybody see it. That's what we're going to do with it. It's because Christ overcame the agonizing wounds and death of crucifixion by his resurrection that the disciples were able to see and touch his scars. And it's why you and today, you and I today, we live triumphantly, proclaiming ourselves not today, but every day as Easter people. Matthew chapter 16, 24 and 25 says, Jesus said to his disciples, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. So you're going to be saved by reducing yourself to Jesus, his spot. In John chapter 20, verse 31, which we've not read yet, it says, you will have life in his name. That's the kind of life we're looking for. Here's the last one and we'll be done. That Jesus reminds us about this resurrection, that he's been there too, and he understands you. He understands what pain is. Archbishop Tutu, he once was in a communion meditation saying these words. Some Christians stay at the foot of the cross, and they never climb up on the cross to see what Jesus sees. And what Jesus sees and feels on the cross isn't pleasant. He received these scars when he died on the cross for our sins. He did not have to suffer. He moved into suffering. We sang about that. He took it on himself so that he could save us from our sins. Jesus suffered for us, reminding us that he understands suffering. He understands wounds. He understands scars. And he understands you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, which I believe was at the bottom of the last song that we sang. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Thomas finds out that Jesus shows his scars, and he understands him. He understands Thomas and our doubts. He understands you and your doubts, and he gets suffering and confusion, and he understands questions and not knowing what's next. He knows and he believes and he trusts the Father, but he goes beyond this showing Thomas his hands and his side. He steps out of the narrative for a moment in the next text. As our, as our team comes, I want to read the last part of this text, verses 29 through 31. It says this at the very end of it. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And Jesus did other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love how he steps out. He's talking to Thomas, and all of a sudden he steps out of the narrative, and he's talking to the rest of us now. Like he, was, he was speaking to Thomas like, hey, get the idea. Get the idea. You, because you've seen me, you have believed. And then all of a sudden he skips off of it and he starts to talk about us. Because it's this. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. You've been given more blessings than Thomas and he was standing right there. He's been handed more. Blessing comes in believing, that's for sure. 
And Jesus blesses those who believe and, and haven't seen and get to touch and those who don't hear directly and see a light grin on his face when he looks at his hand and goes, Brian, it's you. Blessing will come simply by believing it's true. And if we look at what it is that he says in verse 27 when he says, stop doubting and believe to Thomas, everybody and his brother's trying to figure out how to say that right, but the real Greek little translation of that is, do not be unbelieving, but believing. That means I've got to live every day with that in mind. You know, I'm going to have that moment where I've got to know if God's going to come through with this. That's unbelieving. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. See that he's going to step in. See that he's going to make it different. Whatever part of the journey, that suffering's going to come. And the news of your story, of your family, a tear's going to come to your eye. But one day you're not going to have any more tears, any more pain. No more of that's going to happen anymore. I'm going to go back to this story of this guy who prayed. Tuesday. God, I would pray for the peace that you've given us from the hassles we have this day. I want you to know when he said that simple prayer, I thought I was coming in to speak to him. And God was speaking right in the middle of my chest. Oh, Brian, you think you've got some big time hassles. But I'm not going to a cell to be locked up. Here's a man who's locked up every day and he understands more about freedom than I do. And he taught me that day how wrong I was. And I'm here to tell you how wrong you could be. That when we become a believing people, things begin to change. We've got to stop unbelieving and start believing that he will come through. When? I don't know. But we need to believe that he will come through. Because there's one more chance for you today on an Easter Sunday. The waters of this baptism every Sunday are prayed for. It's like somebody praying over like, Lord, somebody, send somebody, get somebody in here. The waters have been prayed for a hundred times over and are always ready for someone to come. And today is a day you could say on Easter Sunday, I went from unbelieving to believing and I had my sins washed away today. I confess Jesus as Lord and I want him as my King and my Lord. We're going to sing one more song. I'm going to invite you to an invitation. I'm going to call you to come at this time, but we're going to sing about the glory of his resurrection because he wins the battles because of resurrection. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.